Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Motherboard Podcast. My name is Brian Anderson. I am the Features Editor at Motherboard. Jason Kebler is out this week, and I will be filling in. A couple of weeks ago, we published a story on Motherboard about a would-be astronaut who has been rejected by NASA twice and started an astronaut for higher service in response. The story was written by Sarah Scholes. Sarah is a science writer and a researcher who has spent time with one of the telescopes in the Quiet Zone in Green Bank, West Virginia. You can read Sarah's profile of Brian Shiro, the would-be astronaut, on motherboard.vice.com, and we'll hear from Sarah in a bit. I first wanted to dig a bit deeper into Brian's story. Brian has applied to NASA's astronaut program twice, and he's fallen short both times. In fact, NASA rated him highly qualified both rounds, so that's within the top 10% of applicants. But nope, rejected both times. So what Brian has done is he started an astronaut for higher service. The idea is to open up doors for aspiring astronauts to the burgeoning commercial space sector, and also to provide training opportunities for these aspiring astronauts, from spinning in a centrifuge to spending time at a Mars simulation in the Utah desert. So I want to hear from Brian about all of that, but I also want to pick his brain on just how far out, really, he thinks we are from routine flights into low orbit or actually into space. So I rang up Brian in Hawaii where he lives and works. Hello. Hey, Brian. Yes, hey. it is. Okay, cool. Um, you know, I, I think I'd, I would like to start by talking about the work that you're doing right now. So you're working at a tsunami warning center. That's right. And, you know, what is that like? What are you looking for exactly? Well, um, you know, I've been interested in science and technology and, and since I was a kid. And, and really in college, I, I got hooked on earth science. And I just thought it was a great application of, of basic science, physics, math, et cetera, to uh, problems that really matter, you know, understanding our own planet, uh, protecting people from hazards, et cetera. And so, um, you know, that that's what kind of drew me into this field. Although, to be honest, also the excitement of, of Doing field work and being outside and going to exciting areas of the world is also part of the allure of the earth sciences too, um, that adventure element. So, but um, yeah, so when when the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami happened, which I'm sure everybody remembers was a the worst natural disaster in modern history, you know, killing some 300,000 people. When that happened, uh, I was in grad school working on a PhD um, in seismology. And uh, I saw a job opportunity come up, and, and so I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll put in my application and see how it goes, and, and sure enough, they wanted me. And so, so I ended up um, taking the job after that as a way to apply what, um, you know, what I've been learning about earthquakes, seismology, geophysics to a problem that really matters. And so here I am 10 years later, and, you know, a lot has changed in 10 years. We've gotten very good with tsunami forecast models and with you know, protecting lives and property from this hazard. And, and it's been fun being at the forefront of that and helping to shape uh, this new field of science, you know, because tsunamis are not well understood. And 
Um, and it's, it's interesting kind of uh, just forging that path through this new discipline. Sure. And, you know, a, a line that I always hear is that we know more about, say, Mars than we do about certain parts of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're talking about the work that you're doing now, can't help but, you know, trace a line to where you ultimately want to go. So you want to go to space. Right. And it, I, I think that there's a natural um, overlap between wanting to explore space and wanting to explore the oceans and as well as exploring parts of the earth that we've not seen or studied well yet. And, uh, you know, you talk to most people who are inclined to exploration and they'll tell you they love all these things. Um, you know, and there's obviously uh, some similarities in the, the systems and the equipment you would use. You know, I'm thinking about scuba here and spacesuits being quite similar in some ways. Um, and, and, you know, the underwater, <coughs> excuse me, habitats being being great training grounds for space, you know, like the, the NASA NEMO missions that they do off Florida. Sure. Um, yeah, and, and but you're absolutely right that in some respects we know more about Mars and and other planetary bodies out there than we do the floor of our own ocean. Um, and, you know, because of that, there, there are efforts underway with, with innovative research ships that, uh, you know, like the NOAA Oceanus Explorer and, and uh, the Smith Ocean Institute's FALCOR, both of which I, I've done cruises on, where they're trying to actually fill those gaps and explore new places and just go out and see what's there rather than have a, a directly kind of hypothesis-driven research expeditions, which are important, but... Sometimes you just got to go see what's there. And, and so there are some efforts underway to do that in the ocean, which is important. When did you first, or, you know, when did it first dawn on you that you wanted to go to space or become an astronaut? It's hard to pinpoint any one, one moment in time, but, you know, I think growing up, the, the pieces were all put in place, you know, that, that kind of instilled in me this fascination with space and, and drive to go see new things and I think um, you know when I was a kid I, I, I loved to, to play with rockets and, and, and you know all the, the toys that, that were space related at the time you know Star Wars and Star Trek and all that and, and of course I loved enjoying those things with my family and my friends and in fact my family would get together every I think it was every Saturday night we'd stay up late and watch Star Trek the next generation together, which was like a fun bonding activity. And, and, and you know, the, these things just all show me that, that such a vision of the future is possible. Uh, and, you know, then I, when I was in junior high, I got to go to space camp, which was really fun. I think your article mentions that. And, and you know, my dad helped me build rockets, which were, were always exciting. And, and uh, you know, putting all that together, I just, just felt that, you know, I, I needed to, to be in space. And, and um yeah, I think that laid the groundwork for it. When, when I, you know, I thought I'd be an astronomer, an astrophysicist for a long time. It's you know throughout high school, basically that's what I wanted to do. And then, but when I started studying that in college, I realized yeah, it's a little too dry for me, a little too, um, I, I don't know, a little too far off. You know, not too tangible. So that, like I said, that sort of brought me back to these the Earth sciences, which I think, I think bridged the gap really well. Sure. For the record, so space camp uh, was. Uh, always something that, you know, I, I always want to go to space camp. I think a lot of people wanted to, um, but what was it actually like? Can you, can you take us back? I only ever remember seeing clips or like ads for uh, space camp, like in between segments on Nickelodeon. I was born in 1986 and that's really like the only Right snippets uh, that I saw, but it's, it still seems to be such a uh, cultural touchdown for people in, in in my my generation, or you know even even your generation. Like everyone remembers Space Camp, even if they hadn't been there. Right, and, and of course it does still exist today. Let's not talk about it always in the past tense, but but I think in in those days in the eighties, you know, it was its heyday for sure, and the. Um, I mean, I only did the three-day version, so that was a little mini version, you know, because it's expensive. So, but but even in that mini version, I, I know you, you get to go do the simulators, you get to um, you know meet some of the trainers. If you're lucky, you get to meet an astronaut. And and, and I just think um, it, it's not like the movie Space Camp, which was also really fun and had an influence on me. But but I think um, you know 
it, it you know you still get to do lots of lots of really fun things like bounce in the simulated lunar gravity chair and um, spin around in the, the gyro seat um, device and and just talk about uh, the physics of getting to space and all that and and uh, you know I did this other more realistic and kind of um, sophisticated space camp a couple of years later when I was after eighth grade which was um, a, a Mars focused one where we actually dove into the equations and to the physics and like like the life support systems and all that sort of stuff which was neat so getting the nuts and bolts of how you really do it um, so I think um, and I've had friends who've done the full space camp and have done the adult ones too and they've always said it's really fun um, and you know so I think it's a good service to people out there I think it helps get yeah. people excited fired up about space sure and then of course eventually you would you would go on to go through two rounds of NASA's astronaut application process so uh, far right <laughs> right so far so in 2007 and in 2012 right you went through that's right Okay. Now, now, what was that like mentally and physically? Can you sort of walk me through both those uh, both those rounds? Yeah. So you know the the way you know the way NASA has a has acquired new astronauts has changed over time. You know, in the early days, it, it was based upon you know who was the best test pilot recommended from their command structure in the military. That was that was in the beginning. You know, and then eventually they branched out to uh, getting scientists in, and which which blossomed in the shuttle program, um, and, and scientists became really the mainstay of the astronaut population, and and so um, and that's the real inspiring opportunity to people like me, and in fact, lots of people out there is you don't have to be an elite fighter pilot kind of person with perfect vision and, and all that. You 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 can you can be a scientist and get these wonderful opportunities. So um, anyway, over time, they, they used to have a rolling application process where you'd submit it and they would you know, look at them every so often. But, but that's, that, that ended in the early 2000s. And so now it's just every once in a while, every four years, five years, they, they put out an application call on USA Jobs, just like any other civil servant job. And you go apply there. And um, you know, that's your foot in the door. Um, it's, it's more than a regular job application because you know, you're, you're, you're you do the online part, then you got to go to this NASA site and do more online part, and then you know they check your references, et cetera. And so I, you know, I was piecing apart all this on my blog, you know, and, and it was interesting learning about the different um, um, ways that you know the people pass from one stage to another throughout this process. And, and there's a community out there called Astronaut Hopefuls Community. Um, which which has evolved into a Yahoo group, but but they they've been tracking this kind of thing for years and years, and and so I got to know some of those guys, and and it, you know it's really just a, an effort to have this community of people who want to be astronauts, and um, and you can share information, and, and of course w within reasonable bounds, um, you know there are some things that you're not allowed to share, um, you know in fact everybody who does an interview at NASA has to sign a non-disclosure agreement and so forth. They don't want to corrupt the process, but. That, that's the broad overview. I can get into the details of each stage if you like. Or um, you yeah, know what you I, know, I would be curious to hear about any part in the process that was particularly grueling, or if there was a point when you were like, you know what, I, I, I just can't, I can't do it. I can't get through this round for for whatever reason. You know, what, what part caused you most trouble? Well, I think the well. First, let, you know, let's make make clear. You know, um, the two times I've applied, I've made the same level, which is called highly qualified. Which is depending on the number of applicants, it's it's somewhere in the order of, of between about eh, two to two to eight or ten percent, depending on where you fall in that range, whether you're at the top or the bottom. So it's 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 definitely in the top, you know, five percent on average of the applicants, which is good, but still, there's a lot of applicants, and so there's a lot of people, you know, who are more qualified. So, um, so my stage um, of, the, of the game has ended um, after reference checks and initial medical exam um, and um, initial questionnaires you fill out and so forth, and, you know, that, so it stops short of the interview, okay? And uh, now I've learned a lot about that from talking to others who've done that, but, um, 
and and interviewed them and blogged about that, et cetera. But but I you know my firsthand experience ends just prior to that stage. And so, but you know, as a general rule, what I could say you know for myself as well as most of the applicants that I've spoken with is is the most frustrating part uh, or challenging part um, is. It's not the content itself of the stages, but it's the waiting game, and it's the the uncertainty and the lack of information that's that's there. So, um, you know, you submit your application, and then you hear nothing for months and months, um, and and then you know you'll get a little postcard in the mail, and, and and hopefully the mail goes through right, and and it says you know you you're either going to continue on to the next party or not, and and that's that's how they do it, and um, and it's and. and and, it, and you, you might start hearing from your your friends and colleagues, you know, on social media and so you know, however you communicate, that um, you know they're starting to get the postcard, but you haven't gotten yours yet, and so it's a little nerve wracking. And um, or and then at the next date, you know, that that sort of lets you know if, whether you're qualified or not. So whether you actually meet the minimum qualifications of having the right degree and experience level and all that, because um, there's a lot of people who apply who are not even qualified; they just apply anyway. So so that's the first kind of cutoff. Um, you know, and then after that, assuming you're qualified, then then NASA breaks all the applications up into different pools based on your field. So, if you're a geologist, you're in one group. If you're an astronomer, you're in one group. If you're a chemist, you're in one group. You know, and you're a pilot and a medical doctor and engineer. So each of these has their own um, panels that review them separately. So you're competing with people of your similar field, basically. And um, they they narrow that down through whatever method they use, um, you know, sitting in committees and reading applications, and um, you know, then they start calling your references. And then this is the second kind of nerve wracking part because you start hearing from your friends and colleagues, oh, I, I, my references were called, and oh yeah, my guy, you know, my my boss told me he was called, you know, you know, what if yours hasn't been called yet? And you start to wonder, um, you know, and so it's this very kind of. Um, you know, secondhand kind of process. Yeah. But eventually, you know, yours will get called and you, and you sigh a relief. Oh, okay, good. It means I did make it. And, you know, that means um, you'll get the postcard, you know, a few weeks later saying, oh, yeah, now now we need you to go do your um, your physical exam. You have to go to a doctor and you got to do this and that, um, you know, and make sure you're healthy. And, and that's just one of many medical and, and physical sort of stages you go through that get increasingly more difficult and invasive as you go on. But um, that, that's, that's kind of how it starts. So to me, I think it's the communication part. And, you know, there's not some portal where you can log on and see your status or anything like that. It, it's not like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you made it pretty far both times. Like you said, you made it to at least the top 10% or, you know, what NASA calls highly qualified and you felt just short both times. Is that discouraging? Not, uh, no, I, I don't think it is. And it, I see it as encouraging. In fact, when you look at the kind of the, the evidence of like what I've been doing, you know, I, each time that's happened, it, it's just caused me to, to just embolden, if you will, kind of what I've been doing. It just kind of validates, if you will, that, oh, you know, I must be on the right track or I must be doing something right. So I, I tend to look at it as a glass half full rather than half empty. And, and um, you know, I think um, it just shows that, that you're not, um, you know, totally off your rocker and thinking you may have a chance in doing this, you know, because the very first time I applied, I'm like, well, you know, I'll just put in the application and see how it goes. I have no idea what, how I stack up. Well, then after you're done, you have some idea where you stand, you know, and, and so then you have your bearings. And, you know, and, and if you talk to some of the astronauts, the veterans, they've, many of them applied multiple times. I mean, some as, as, as many as a dozen or more times before they eventually got in. And so one of the things that NASA looks for um, is they, they want to see that you're persistent. Yes, they want to see that you don't give up, but they also want to see that you're always improving yourself and that you're always um, trying to do more. And, and so they actually, you know, they compare your previous and your, your new application. So they, they specifically keep your previous applications on file with the purpose of comparing them. So to see, you know, have you just been sitting around doing nothing for four years or, you know, or, or have you actually done something new, like gotten a new degree or, or, you know, learned some new skill or whatever. And so I think, um, and by the way, if you skip one of the applications, like like let's say you, one of the opportunities comes around and you say, well, I, I won't try this time. 
then they purge your files and you're gone. So, and if you ever apply again in the future, you don't have that comparison anymore. But um, yeah, so that that I think the um, you know the the lesson there is just keep trying and 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 also don't take it too personally too. Is you know like I mentioned, you know how they divide you up into different disciplines and you're competing really against people of your own kind. Yeah. You know. In any given year, NASA may not want a geologist, for example, like like me. So they, um, you know, like in the last selection that happened in 2013, they pretty much took, uh, you know, pilots and medical doctors kind of people. So, um, and they they didn't take really any regular scientists. So it's you know it it's it just depends on what their needs are and their priorities for that particular round, and those change with time and you know with the needs of their of their missions that are upcoming and their plans and um, hopefully not politics. Although that, that's unescap- inescapable to some degree, but, but I think, um, you know, it just, it has to, the stars have to align to a certain degree. You have to be in the right place at the right time for it to work out. Do you plan on applying a third time? Of course, of course. And, you know, and if, if um, history's any guide, it's going to be coming up very soon, um, maybe within the year. And so I'll, I'll put my, application in again and um you know i'll keep doing it until you know i I get so old that i think it's not relevant anymore but um i think um you know nasa is not the only way to get to space of course but it's certainly one of the most respected and and most um uh, i think exciting ways to do it so i think um you know nothing would make me prouder than than to, to be selected but but just just going through the process alone is very useful because, like I said, it's inspirational. It helps you be on your toes. It helps you learn new skills um, if you want to keep improving and meet new people along the way. You know who have similar goals and and you know I've done all those things throughout the last few years and you know and, and I think it's made me a better person as a result. So you know I'm I'm not set on any certain outcome through this process, but I think um, uh, you know the results, you know the positives certainly are, are there. Sure, and seems to be a, a, an exciting moment for for the future of of space travel. You know, there's Virgin Galactic and just a slew of other private companies who want to start sending folks into low Earth orbit and and beyond. And you know, for, for, from out of that um, zeitgeist, is that sort of where astronaut for the astronauts for hire came out of. Yeah, so the you know the the organization astronauts for hire, which which I helped co-found, um, grew out of this realization that there is a real um, opportunity here for for scientists astronauts to to do important missions initially in suborbital space, but also orbital, where um, you can contribute to to new areas of inquiry. Now, what I mean by that is there's this area they call the ignorosphere, kind of in, in quotes, where it's, it's too high for balloons and, and, and uh, you know, sounding rockets don't spend much time there. It's too low for satellites and space station. You know, and it's an area where people have not lingered very long. You know, this is the mesosphere, the upper mesosphere, the atmosphere. And so we don't know much about it. And, and so these suborbital vehicles, people like Virgin Galactic and X-Core, well, that's exactly where they're going to be traveling. So, that alone is an exciting scientific opportunity, and plus the people going up there, the new cohort of flyers, brings a whole new element to the medical aspect. You know, what about you know um, how does this exacerbate medical conditions or not? You know, because you're going to have less and less um, you know elite you know again in quotes people going up um, as space travel gets more accessible, especially when you consider all the space tourists going who've paid for tickets. You know, there's going to be a wide gamut of you know health levels and types of people going up, and and so you know there's a whole new area of research medically. You know, and there are others. Those are just two examples, but there are many other fields of study where um, it's going to open up new areas. Now, who's going to do this sort of work? And and so what we realized is, well, you know, there's a need to get people ready for those sorts of missions, and to help create those sorts of missions as well. And so. The organization came together as as people who have that shared vision to prepare for um, creating new mission opportunities um, in the commercial space frontier, and um, you know, and we've we've done quite a few things along those lines in in, in five years and, um, and going strong. Yeah, 
Now, so from my understanding, astronauts for hire, you know, hooks up people with, you know, any number of simulations or, you know, flight training, outdoor courses, this, this, this sort of thing, correct? You know, as well as, as uh, you know, opening a, a door to any space-based potential work in the future. Right. So that, that's, there's a lot of activities that we do. I mean, but, but Astronauts for Hire, first of all, is a membership organization. It's a, it's a nonprofit, and it exists to help um, improve the competitiveness of, of astronaut candidates. Okay? So that can take a lot of forms. So that, that um, primarily includes giving astronaut hopefuls the skills and tools they need to, um, to, to eventually get a job as an astronaut with, with whomever that may be. Um, and, and so part of that activity, yes, includes doing training of various types to, to prepare your body and your mind for the rigors of space flight. So we've done, you know, centrifuge training, we've done survival training, um, you know, we've done, um, what's called sensor motor training, which is kind of, uh, adapting your body to changing gravity environments and, um, and, and other things as well as spacesuit training and so forth. And, and, you know, this is part of the equation. And, and you know, and the other part of it, like I, like I highlighted before, is, is, well, the training's all well and good, but it doesn't mean much if it's not for a mission. So, you know, it's, it, you don't want to put the cart before the horse. And so what you need to do is really pr- get these missions off the ground, whether that is creating them yourself as a, as a principal investigator and applying for funding through some funding mechanism or, or doing it, you know, as a business, for example, um, you know, and we, we've done it both ways. We've collaborated with, with external businesses. We've, we've written our own proposals internally. We've, we've done things different ways and, and gotten other projects off the ground. Um, so, you know, but however you do it, um, you know, get involved with a project, um, either with someone else or, or that you create yourself. And, uh, and then everything falls in place because then you have a mission. Then you have a, an actual profile that you need to fly and an actual task you need to accomplish Okay, well, then you can train more specifically to what that is. And, and um, you know, the best example of that is, is Project Possum, which, which came out from our group. Um, Jason Rymuller is, is the PI behind that. And, um, you know, which was, is an example of a suborbital series of missions that he's going to be flying, and um, which was initially funded by NASA. And he, it's taken its off in its own life now and has um, all these other collaborators um, onto it as a consortium. So, um, and they're studying noctilucent clouds in the mesosphere, which are markers of climate change. So it's a really relevant project as well. So I'm very proud of that example. It's one of the examples of spinoffs that have come from our organization. There are others, but um, the, uh, yeah, so that's part of what we do. Now, part of what we do yeah. is, is network, networking, uh, you know, among the people and, and getting to know each other. And, 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 and there's conferences and there's, uh, you know, kind of the educational aspect and networking aspect of, of what we do. Um, and then the, kind of the, the last and third leg to what we do is, is outreach, um, you know, because we want to inspire the next generation. We want to make sure that this isn't just serving the needs of everybody today who, who's a member of the organization today. We want to make sure that there are new people coming through the pipeline, that, that kids, you know, are you know, inspired to want to do these sorts of things and, and, and just generally make people aware in the public that these opportunities exist and that there's an exciting frontier that's about to really break open um, where there's going to be a lot more people going to space, the cost of going to space is going to go down, there are really great science questions that are going to be driving a lot of these missions and, and the bottom line is there's going to be more opportunity to go to space, learn about space, live and work there and, and you know create this vision of the future that I think we all want where, where space is a big part of humanity. Now, to switch gears just a little bit, do all countries have the same or similar astronaut criteria? I don't imagine they do. And in your case, could you have gone abroad to another country and try and become an astronaut elsewhere? Well, the the requirements in different countries do vary. Um, Now, if you're talking about, uh, you know, a, a government astronaut, um, then, then certainly they do vary, um, but they're not wildly different. Um, you know, I think the U.S. probably does have the most um, maybe liberal requirements, if you will, being being so science focused. And uh, in other countries where the 
where the opportunities are even less, um, are, are even more narrowly focused on, on more of the, um, you know, smaller subset of the type of population that could be astronauts, you know, more, more, more of the pilot types. Um, although there are exceptions to that, of course, but, but I think, um, what, what can I say about that? The, uh, you can't, you have to be a citizen of the country where you're applying. So there are people I know who have dual citizenship, say Canada and the U.S. or, or, the, or a European country in the U.S. And if that's the case, then you, you are allowed to apply to opportunities in both places. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Um, and that increases your chances, right? So, um, the, it's, the competition is high in the U.S., you know, something like 6,000 applications for eight slots like it was in 2012-13. But if you think that's high, it's, it's even worse in Canada and Europe where you might have eight or 10,000 applicants for two slots. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, just that much more competitive in those places. And, and it's just because there aren't, they don't have their own space launch system. They're, you know, they're more dependent upon others. And, and, you know, of course, the U.S. is dependent on Russia now. Um, but hopefully that's going to be changing. Now, speaking of Russia, there are opportunities to go train in Russia as a cosmonaut um, commercially. If you have the money to do so, you can go there for, uh, it's on the order of six months, and you live in Star City, and you, you pretty much do the same training that, that their government cosmonauts would do. Um, that, that is the training that most of the, not most, I think all of the, the, the commercial space tourists to date have done. People like, you know, Ansari and Garriott and, and, and these people have, um, that's where they've received most of their training. And um, so that's an option if you want to pay. In fact, some countries, smaller countries that don't have their own space programs or their, their fledgling programs, they, they tend to send their government astronauts to the Russian program because it's cost effective. Um, so, so those are all sort of the options out there. Now, there, there are new players like Bigelow Aerospace on the field that want to provide a place for these smaller countries to come and, and have, a, um, you know, like a, a habitat for rent in space where they can do their work and their research. And so um, that's part of his business model. Is, and so it could be that, um, you know, if you're, you know, I don't know where you might be, but you know, let's say you're from Brazil or something like that, which has a space program but not a, not a big human component. Well, you know, you, you just buy some time on his space station and go up there. And so um, and, and he'll have his own training program to go along with that too. Um, so there are a number of commercial space training programs. I haven't even, not even mentioned all of them here, but um, which are emerging that um, they, they seem to all be aligned with the individual companies, you know, Virgin has its own, and, and, and I already mentioned Bigelow, and Xcore is going to have its own, and et cetera. And so, um, you know, and there are some independent training programs like like the NASTAR Center that are trying to get people ready for mainly for Virgin flights, but but others as well. Yeah, and uh, you know, so there are there are plenty of commercial opportunities to go and do some training just to um, to see if you have the right stuff, you know, and that, that to some degree that's part of what we've done. In astronauts for hire is, is give people that opportunity. One of the benefits of being a member is we've negotiated special arrangements with a number of training partners. So there's discounts. Um, so you get a discounted price if you're a member um, versus if you're not. So then, if we're talking, you know, commercial spaceflight, real talk, you know, how how much longer until tickets aren't a hundred thousand dollars? Per seat, you know, what, mm-hmm. at what point is this going to be, you know, really opening up to a, a, a lot more people than it might be today? At, le- at least for you know commercial. Yeah. You know, I, I know it never will be not hard, but at what point will we actually be sending people to space? That that's the big question, isn't it? And and you know there are think tanks out there, Futron, et cetera, that have written papers about this, trying to project the demand and the future of, of where the demand will be. And, and, you know, 
they're they're useful, but one thing I've learned is they're they're always overly optimistic. And and so in real life things happen, like you alluded to, these these disasters happen, you know, there's not only have there been problems with some SpaceX and orbital launches, but the Virgin Galactic crash, which killed the pilot, um, you know, co-pilot last year is is um, you know was a tragedy that's definitely set the industry back. But um, you know, so it'll happen when it happens. I know it's not a good answer. Um, now, most people, when you ask them that this question, they always say about two years off. It's always two years off, and of course, right. that keeps moving. Um, you know. We're past the time when, when you know, Richard Branson said he would be flying already, and you know, he said over and over again, and, and emphasized that he's going to be on that first flight. He and his family uh, on that first flight. So he's not going to let go unless it's safe. And and, um, and they're the leaders currently in the kind of the commercial arena. Now there are other, many other players. We've mentioned XCore a couple times, and there's there's others too. But um, you know, I think Virgin's likely going to be first, and and of course SpaceX too is is they're going to be um, first to orbit most likely in Boeing as well, and of course those companies have contracts with NASA, so NASA is their customer, so they're going to be flying NASA astronauts as well as their own astronauts most likely, um, so there's going to be a small limited number of of ways to get you know your foot in the door that way, but they're going to be very elite kind of um, you know not so different than than traditional. Um, past being an astronaut. So when it's going to really open up is I think when these um, purely commercial companies that are not doing business with NASA uh, really are flying, you know, all the time, people like Virgin. And, um, you know, I think a reasonable estimate is, is within about 10 years, you're going to see this be routine. You're going to see the price be lower than it is today. Okay. Um, but, but between now and that point, is you know at first the space tourist or, or otherwise known as space flight participants uh, taking their their flights up there and these are these are rich people who can afford the big price tag and and as with any new industry you know just like uh, the airline industry when it began uh, it's going to be expensive at first and it's going to be the realm of, of rather elite people um, but we're going to see the price come down as more and more people start to take advantage of it and use it and so I think the second tier to this. Um, is going to be the scientists and the researchers, which is really the the part we're targeting towards. You know, and astronauts for hire, and others out there too. And it's because um, you don't have to be a, a rich millionaire or billionaire to 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 do that. You just have to have a good science project and be able to get funding for the science project. So, uh, and that's that's a lot easier to do, I think. So, there's going to be a lot of science missions that are going to be flown both alongside the, the tourist missions and, you know, and interwoven with them, but, but also um, going after them after most of the, the tourist supply has been exhausted because it's a finite number of people. Um, and so I think, you know, and then that's going to really help drive the cost down more because there's this demand for science. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, we reach this point, maybe it's a decade from now, when, you know, the prices are, are lower, that's more routine, Etc. Of course, things we can't change. We can't change physics, right? We can't change um, the, the amount of energy you need to escape gravity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so it, it's going to depend a lot on, on how efficiently we can make rocket fuel and, and how um, you know we can do this in a responsible way that doesn't pollute. And that, you know, all these questions. There, there are real things to tackle. Um, you know, and, and, and new technologies I think will be developed along the way that will help. Great. Well, this has been uh, super helpful. Um, and before I let you go, I want to give you the last word. If there's anything you want to expand upon or clarify, go for it. Well, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with your listeners today. I mean, I think it's great that Motherboard has this interest in space and in exploration and in adventure. And, you know, all these things come together with, with space exploration. And, and I'm just Thrilled, thrilled that you've asked me here. So thank you. And you know, if, if anybody out there wants to be an astronaut, no matter what your age, no matter what your background is, you 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 can do it. You know, you can try. You know, what's the harm in trying? So um, you know, you'll look back later in life and regret it if you don't. So I think um, you know, why not try? That that would be what I would leave with people. You know, it's the, it's not only a dream for kids. I, I think adults need to aspire to this too. We need more people out there who. Who have these big dreams, and because when you have these and you work toward them, 
magic happens. We develop new technologies, we make new friends and partnerships that, that lead to new innovations. And that's how we're going to make this work. That was Brian Shiro, would-be astronaut, founder of Astronauts for Hire, and the subject of a profile that we published last month on Motherboard. You should definitely check out that story, but right now I'm curious to hear from Sarah Scholes, who wrote the story. You know, what drew her to Brian Shiro's story? And does she think Brian might actually have a shot? Does she think the commercial spaceflight industry is just a bunch of hype? I rang up Sarah, and first I wanted to hear a bit about her past life. I actually started out as an astronomy research person intending to be an astrophysicist until I realized that I was more interested in um, researching other people and what they were doing than in doing my own research. And so when I realized that, I started going into um, science communication and outreach, and I worked for a telescope in Green Bank, West Virginia. Awesome. And um, yeah, and so after that, I started going into more general science writing and worked at Astronomy Magazine for a couple of years and then ventured out um, into freelance writing and have been doing a lot of um, space science stories and specifically I'm interested in, in the people and their stories. Definitely. So Green Bank, is that the, that's the radio free zone, right? Yeah, yeah, it's in the radio quiet zone. So I didn't have a microwave or a cell phone for two and a half years. <laughs> What uh, what what sort of work were you doing, and what telescope were you working on there? Um, I was at the the Green Bank Telescope, the big one. It's it's three hundred fifty feet across, and it's this big white telescope that just sits in the middle of the field next to uh, you always see it in pictures next to barns, which is kind of an interesting technological contrast. Um, but I was actually working with with students who would come there and stay for either a couple days or a couple weeks, and work on one of the smaller 40-foot radio telescopes there and um, look at, you know, hydrogen gas and other galaxies in our own galaxy. And so I would help them interpret their research and then give little research presentations on what they had found about radio waves in the universe. That's awesome. So I'm going to cut to the chase here with your personal backstory. (laughs) Would you ever go to space? And if you would... Why would you want to? Uh, I would definitely go to space. When I was a kid, like many kids, I dreamed of being an astronaut. And I I actually grew up really next to the Kennedy Space Center and watched all of the shuttle launches from my backyard. Um, So I, I kind of grew up in that environment and dreamed of being an astronaut, but then kind of went a different route with adulthood, unlike unlike Brian, who I've been writing about. And, um, I mean, if someone gave me the opportunity now, I would, I would definitely go to space. I, um, I would even go on a one-way trip to Mars, which I've thought a lot about. Wow. Um, it seems like, a, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, probably no one's going to give me the opportunity, so I don't really have to actually make that decision. But, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I think it, it would be a great personal experience to go to space and have that perspective on the universe which I write about all the time but it's a totally different thing to to be there and uh, for something like uh, a mission to Mars I feel like that would be a great contribution to humanity but um, I'm probably not a prime candidate so again it's probably not something that is going to be a reality but I would do it would you? I don't know if I would do it it would have to be at a point where a lot of people have done it, and I know it's incredibly safe. I, I hate mm-hmm. flying to begin with, so uh, the thought of getting in a much more sophisticated plane and rocketing out of our orbit seems kind of terrifying to me. But if it, if it, if it, if it gets to a, if it gets to a point like Brian uh, says, it's uh, going to get to, um, and it's safe and enough people have done it, and it's just become routine, then I'd maybe consider it. But I can't, I, I, I wonder if it's going to be at that point in my lifetime. And I was talking to Brian, and he said, sometime in the next 10 years, commercial space flight is going to be a reality. 
And of course, he said that in light of an old an old line that people always say, oh, it's always two years away. But he was pretty insistent that it's going to be 10 years uh, until commercial spaceflight has begun in earnest and people are going into low Earth orbit, this sort of thing. Um, how does that sit with you? Do you think that's a realistic target, 10 years? I... I'm not sure it's a realistic target. I feel like the the general response to things going wrong in commercial spaceflight is, you know, public uproar and outcry and huge delays. And I feel like before commercial spaceflight becomes safe, there are probably going to be more accidents like the ones we've seen in the past few years. And while I think it's I think it's totally technologically possible to do the things we need to do to make it ubiquitous and safe in the next 10 years, I have a hard time believing that with public response and um, the things you need for funding and the support that you need, that that that, that will happen in the next 10 years. But I would love for it to. Um, I would love for Brian to be right. Sure. Now, what initially drew you to his story? How did you hear about Brian Shiro? Um, I was actually just, I was talking to a friend who was suggesting article ideas to me, and, and she said, I would be really interested in hearing about someone who went through the astronaut application process and maybe even part of the training and then failed because you invest, even just in the application, so much of yourself and so much time and so much training and what it's like to put all of yourself into that dream and then not actually have it come to fruition at all, and I I thought that was also an interesting idea. So I actually first found someone who had who had spent time um, in Houston and doing some of the training and hadn't made it through the final stages, but they were actually too too traumatized by the whole thing and by that failure to have to have success that they didn't want to talk about it. And um, that person suggested to me. Brian and showed me his blog and his organization and all of the work that he had been doing. And so then I contacted Brian and he was happy to talk about his experience and um, I think his general hopeful demeanor and uh, proactive attitude about becoming an astronaut probably make him um, more willing to talk about it, even though I'm sure it's hard for him not not to have become an astronaut yet. Sure, yeah. And I think his story is interesting because he has applied and been rejected not once but twice both times Mm -hmm. nasa basically rated him highly qualified (laughs) so he was basically Mm -hmm. in the top 90 uh percent or even above that but still fell still fell short now when you're talking with him at any point did he sound discouraged that he's tried and fallen short twice uh, no, actually, he didn't ever sound discouraged about trying and falling short. He he seemed to have the attitude of, you know, if you are a highly qualified candidate, that means that you could be an astronaut. Just like for many jobs, there are, you know, 100 people who could do the job well, and then you just choose from among those. And so I don't, he didn't seem to see it as, you know, a personal, a personal failing at all, or even like a personal rejection just that like there were so many people who could do a good job that in some sense at a certain point it was luck and you could do all of the trainings you could you know become scuba certified and do zero g experiences and learn these things and make yourself better but that at some point there's an element of luck involved that he just hadn't he hadn't quite gotten that luck in his favor yet but he he um he remains hopeful that it will come sometime in the future yeah, I mean, he told me he's going to apply a third time the next time the job listing goes up. So have to give it to him there, you know. Maybe third, yeah. maybe, the, maybe the third time is is the charm here, but we'll see. He did say that NASA in its selection process both times has been quote splitting hairs. Now <laughs> I know you tried to get a hold of NASA for the story you wrote, but NASA gave you a bit of the runaround, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they were not very willing to talk about. They they kept saying that they didn't like to talk about programs into which they had no insight, which was the line. And I think they, they don't like to make comments about private organizations that could come back to get them in the future if they either start to view those organizations positively or negatively. They, I just I kind of got the party line with anyone who I talked to, and it actually took a while to get a response at all. And when I finally did, it was not. It was not a response uh, directly about uh, Brian's program. Yeah, yeah, it seemed mm-hmm. like sort of a sort of a um, scripted response. But then you went elsewhere and you got um, you got some context from a space flight historian. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Jonathan McDowell, who works at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, has been writing. A newsletter for decades about the space, each space flight that goes on and what's going on in space flight and what the future of space flight is. And he's just been sending that out to the internet for a long time. And so he's really steeped in the progression of space flight from where it was, you know, in the 80s to, to now. And so I got his perspective and he was a little bit less optimistic than Brian was about where things are going and that he didn't necessarily think there would be a market for private astronauts aboard these commercial commercial space flight um, vessels. But he he also, uh, like Brian and like me, is hopeful that that that, that could happen sometime. And he also um, he specified that whether Brian and astronauts for hire were successful would depend on how NASA viewed them. And if, if Brian and the organization could kind of become part of the insiders club of NASA. And so it, it remains to be seen whether that will happen from NASA's combat. It sounds like it hasn't happened yet, but who knows in the future. Yeah. Now, can you tell me a bit about astronauts for hire? This is the the company that Brian has started in response to, falling short twice. But, you know, what's the goal with Astronauts for Hire? Uh, so Astronauts for Hire is an organization that hopes to both train people to become private commercial astronauts and to help, um, as Brian says, grow the market for those astronauts because there currently isn't really a place for them. So he helps people up with um, training experiences like flights on um, planes that go up in big parabolas and uh, experience zero gravity or scuba training or wilderness training and helps people get the skills that they would need either to apply to NASA or to become commercial astronauts later. And then he's actually working with some of the private companies to get contracts to do microgravity research. Um, and so he hopes that um, scientists who want to do research on, you know, say how, how liquids behave in space, like how they did an experiment with how beer behaves in space and how it behaves in the human body, which we should know before we send people up long term. He's hoping to, to test things like that on some of the shorter flights and to have his astronauts for hire who are part of the organization get those contracts. And they have been successful. I'm not sure of the total number. I think three or four contracts that they've had. Um, so you can join the organization as a flight member. And in that case, you're, you're vetted to see if you could actually be an astronaut um, physically and academically and things like that. And then there are the supporting members who um, don't get to become astronauts, but want want other people to be able to become commercial astronauts. And so then he brings them together to help everyone learn more about the process and kind of become part of shaping the future of commercial space flight. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned in the piece, though, this stuff is still pretty dang expensive. You know, at least right now, getting a seat on Virgin Galactic's low-orbit ship or, 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 you know, a seat on any of these other uh, ships being built by private companies that are still on the drawing board, you need around $100,000 more or less to secure a flight. That's a lot of money. And a lot of people aren't going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at what point and what does it take to bring that sort of cost 
down? Huge question, but. Um, that is a huge question. And I don't know about the, I don't know how they would bring the cost down aside from if they had more of them, you know, running anything in bulk costs less money. So if, as Brian, as Brian believes in the next 10 years, these become really regular and it's an, a normal thing, then costs would go down um, because it's regular and because they're not having to invent things anymore. They'll just be maintaining and running them. Um, but Brian um, is actually suggesting that these scientists or maybe the people who work for scientists can put in grants with the National Science Foundation or the National Institute of Health to cover the cost of what the flight would be so that you wouldn't have to have $100,000 or $250,000 to get a seat, but the, you know, the, the government science organizations would pick up the tab um, because um, his idea is that the, the people who can pay, you know, the price of a house to go into space who have that kind of dispensable income. There's not that many people who both have the money and want to go on a dangerous flight to space. So uh, the tourism companies might run out of takers faster than they think. And then the commercial research market could pick up the tab, or essentially the government could pick up the tab. Yeah. The idea. Yeah. There's a line that I've heard a lot in light of some recent incidents, the SpaceX rocket exploding, um, of course, someone uh, dying in a test flight on a Virgin Galactic flight, I believe. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a line that I keep hearing is that, well, space is hard. You hear companies say this, space is hard. Whenever there's an incident like we've seen lately, They'll say space is hard, but is that a good excuse? You know, of course space is hard, but at what point do private companies who want to go to space, at what point do they need to actually, you know, stick a landing or have a flight go off where someone doesn't die? I mean, that's, that's, that's quite tragic. I think that's holding the industry back. I agree, and I think that we're about at the time where it's going to stop being acceptable to just have accidents, and part of the reason these companies exist is because NASA is slow and expensive and not doing that much, but part of the reason that NASA is slow and expensive and and not doing that much is because they don't adhere to the, you know, cheaper, faster solutions, which some of the commercial spaceflight companies do, and which is generally true in business as compared to the government is like, let's do it, let's do it faster, let's do it cheaper, let's let's get it done and make some money. And I think that that attitude of going forward when you're not totally sure of the technology is probably causing some of these accidents. I mean, I don't I don't work there. I'm not behind the scenes, so I don't know. Um, but I think that you know these aren't crazy sci-fi future technologies. They are space planes that are not even going into orbit and you know that that technology it's new but it's not it's not crazily innovative it's not something we couldn't have done that long ago and so i think i think it's i think it's probably time for them to start taking a little bit more responsibility for that and also i i saw an interesting perspective on the fact that you know space is hard innovation requires sacrifice sometimes people are going to die but right now they're dying because tourists want to be able to pay a hundred thousand two hundred thousand dollars to go on a space flight which is not exactly the same as you know we're going to put a man on the moon it's not quite the same inspiring mission and so i think people in general probably aren't going to accept that kind of sacrifice for much longer yeah well i think this for now is all i wanted to hit on with you. So thank you again for your time and I'll sort of let you know how this is coming together. That was Sarah Scholes. Last month we published a story that Sarah wrote for Motherboard. It was a profile of Brian Shiro, would-be astronaut. You can find that story, if you haven't read it already, 
on motherboard.vice.com. Commercial space really does seem inevitable. It's just a question of how long we've got until that's a reality. I think it's telling that both Shiro and Sarah Scholes are both cautiously optimistic. Who knows? Maybe the third time's a charm for Brian Shiro. We'll be back to regularly scheduled programming next week. And until then, have a very, very chill weekend. I'm Brian Anderson, Motherboard Features Editor. See you on the other side. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.